How many of you know the tradition of the boy bishop? You heard of this? Oh, good. No, you don't know this, so I get to tell you about it. It was actually something popular during the Middle Ages in places like England, France, Spain, other areas of Europe. And it went something like this. A boy was chosen from the choir to serve as bishop for like a day or a week, whatever specified period of time. And the other boy choristers were to serve as his canons in the cathedral. And during the worship service, that was often on the feast day of St. Nicholas, which is near Christmas, when the Magnificat declares he has cast down the mighty from their thrones, the bishop steps down, and the chosen boy is then vested with a robes and a cope, a mitre, you know, the bishop's hat. He's given a crozier, that's the, the bishop's staff. And he's given the cathedra, which is the seat of the bishop, which is why it's called a cathedral. It's amazing, right? Then he would preach a sermon. The boy bishop would serve in his role for a specified period of time, usually a week or so before going, going back to his place in the choir. And, you know, he could do whatever he wanted as bishop. I mean, he couldn't marry people, he couldn't do Holy Communion, but he could bless people, and they did you know, parades through the town and all of that, and just very, very interesting. Well, the practice was abolished by the Reformers, no surprise, but it, it, um, it actually gained interest again in the 19th century. And there are places today where it's still observed, uh, particularly in England, places like Hereford, uh, Salisbury, Cathedral. One boy bishop was recently, who recently served was asked, what is the most important quality to be a boy bishop? He said, it's probably the ability to consume huge quantities of tea while visiting with those who come to see you. <laughs> see, the practice of the boy bishop, and recently actually a girl bishop, was intended to help the church not take itself too seriously. But there are other important lessons in it. Namely, to remind the church and its leaders that humility is a primary requirement for leadership. And also that God may call someone to a task that we've never thought of, a person we've never thought of. Maybe we even think they're unqualified. Yet God calls them, puts his gifts on them, places them into leadership, because God often surprises us. So remember, uh, we're walking through this season of, of life together, considering how the various readings each week might shape our understanding of life together, shape our understanding of community. At least that's the lens that we're using, and it's not the only way to read these passages, of course. But I'm, I'm hoping that it will be helpful for us, because in this time of pandemic and other challenges to community, we can be strengthened um, in our life together in the church by hearing the scriptures in this way. Leadership's a topic that gets a lot of attention these days, doesn't it? I mean, there are entire PhD programs just in leadership. Libraries full of books on leadership. Seminars, mentors, coaches, blogs, resources. There's a whole leadership industry. And that's true in the business world. It's true in education. It's true in the church. A seminary professor told me that if they have to read one more paper or thesis on leadership, they would scream. <laughs> and, you know, you don't learn leadership by reading a book about it. It's like sailing, or playing a musical instrument, or brain surgery. You have to do it. Now, once you're in the middle of it, a book can be really helpful, right? Because then you, well, not brain surgery, but you know the other things that 
you then you're like, oh, yeah, okay, now I understand this. Max Dupree said that leadership is an art. It's something to be learned over time, not simply by reading books. Leadership is more tribal than scientific, more a weaving of relationships than an amassing of information. Leadership is important. It matters. And we only have to consider the many failings of leaders and their impact to know this. But leaders are human. They're not perfect. Leaders will let us down. It all depends in what way and to what degree. I have been disappointed by leaders. I know I have certainly disappointed others from time to time. But I've also experienced healthy and godly leadership that in turn bears the fruit of healthy and faithful communities. One of the most important resources, recent resources on this is a book that uh, Scott and Laura have given to us called The Church Called Tove. I just call it Tove, right? And it, it's so important. They have a sequel coming out soon that will continue the theme. I have given this book to, to numerous leaders, both in the church and in Christian organizations. I encourage you to get a copy, and I encourage you to give a copy. But leading in the church has unique demands, because we're not a business, not in the way we think about business. We don't measure how we're doing in the way that many businesses must measure. Although I think probably too many churches are focused on nickels and noses. That's the kind of phrase we use about it. We care for people over time, don't we? There's not always a neat and clear way to measure how we're doing. And the role of leading in the church, whether it's a small group or a Bible study or the vestry or even the bishop, that rests in the gifts that God has given for his people. Qualities that flow from the Spirit for the good of the community and the work that is done in the world. And character matters to that. So all that to saying, as we look at Moses, Moses is called to a really tremendous task to lead a huge group of people from literally one world to the other. He has no clue how to do it. And he's right to be reluctant. Every objection that he makes when God calls him, God says to him, I'll handle that. I'll handle that. I'll handle that. You just go. And we know it's not an easy job. I mean, we read the narrative. We see the stubbornness of the people. We're all too aware of Moses' own shortcomings. Yet there's progress. There is movement. They move from bondage to freedom. They're able to, to hope that they're going to reach the promised land because God is faithful. God leads and protects. It's a divine task that Moses steps into. He was right to say, I can't do this. God's response was, we can together. Uh, the song this morning was so powerful about the God's sovereign over us, the God's provision to do the things that he calls us to do. I want to encourage you in whatever you're leading, whether that's leading a family, leading a group at your work, a Bible study, or a seminary department, to know that you can depend on God's faithfulness to do the things that you are not able to do. So lead through prayer. Rely on divine participation. Listen carefully to the Spirit and to those around you and know that you are where you are because God has placed you there and gifted you. And I don't mean just talents. I mean gifts, divinely blessed and given for the purpose at hand, especially in the Christian community. There have been so many times when I have been up against the wall on something or there was conflict brewing or situations where I just knew I was not up to it. Things that could have gone so wrong only to see a resolution that could only have been made by the presence of God's grace. 
Now, it doesn't always go that way. But it's good to know we're never alone in our efforts to lead. God is with us. And this is what true charismatic leadership is. It's leading through gifts. I mean, that's the word, charism. It means gifts. We lead through gifts and not celebrity. There's nothing flashy about it. This is what James is calling the people to, you know, to, to pray, to come together, to bring the gifts that God has given and do that. Be those people. Well, God was certainly with Moses, wasn't he? In Numbers 11, the people are complaining again, and God is providing manna for them each day. Food in the wilderness that sustains them, but they're getting tired of it. They want a broader menu. And so they begin to remember the meals they had in Egypt, which they said at no cost. Of course, they forgot they were slaves, so it cost them everything. They had fish, they had fruit, they had leeks, onions, and garlics. You get the idea manna didn't taste like much, right? That's what they remember, all the spices. But the complaining grew and grew until people were wailing en masse. And Moses has a meltdown. He has a meltdown. He has a temper tantrum. It's just a meltdown. What terrible thing have I done, Lord, to deserve the job of leading these people? Really? See, this burden has been on Moses. He's carried it. He's lived it 24-7. He just can't take it anymore. In fact, he despairs of life. If this is how it's going to be, then just kill me now and get it over with. You know, we're tempted to read a little bit of humor into the antics, but I want to caution against that. Because this rings true to so many pastors that I have heard in their leading in the last year and a half. The Lord's response is this, bring me 70 of the elders. Let them stand with you. And in the tent of meeting, God meets them. He takes some of the spirit that he'd given to Moses, he distributes it to the 70. Moses is not to lead alone. The divine gift is shared. It's a simple lesson, right? It tells its own story, but it's so important and vital. Leadership is not done alone. It's not done in a vacuum. It is shared. And this is a mark of healthy community. And where it is ignored or refused, and authority is concentrated in one person or a very small group, there's just a high chance for unhealth and toxicity to come and settle. Maybe not at first. Things may seem to be very efficient. (laughs) But efficiency is not a goal in the church because it's about people and our lives are broken. Around here, we encourage team building. You know this if you've been around for a while. If someone steps in to lead a ministry, then I usually encourage them, start by gathering those around you who also are called to this. Don't do this on your own. In fact, don't come up with a plan or a vision or goals until you have a team that you can sit with and discern together how God might be leading you. Give away authority. Share it. See, this is how God saves Moses' leadership. Actually, how he saves his life. And it's how things can flourish, grow, and be healthy in the church. So that's the first thing, shared leadership. There's another important lesson here in Numbers. I really like this part. (laughs) Two men, Eldad and Medad, were still in the camp. They didn't go to the tent of meeting. They were invited to go. They didn't go for whatever reason. They were considered elders, but they weren't there. Yet the Spirit also rested on them. They were prophesying in the camp. So immediately, someone runs to Moses to report this. That always happens, right? You can count on it. And Joshua, who's Moses' right-hand man, says, tell him to stop. Tell him to stop. They hadn't followed proper procedure. They didn't read the instructions. Maybe they didn't go to seminary. 
Maybe they weren't very articulate. Maybe they didn't have an outgoing personality. See where I'm going here. A mark of healthy and fruitful community is the openness to follow God's leading, even when it challenges us. The Spirit just spilled over, didn't it? I mean, it could not be contained. It burst beyond the sacred holy sanctuary. It was in the camp. It was out. The Spirit was out. Anglicans are really good at procedure. right? Maybe not as good as the Presbyterians, but we're really good at it. And we have a set way of doing almost everything and strange words to go with it. (laughs) that sometimes God is doing something new in a new way. And a vibrant community will learn to make room for that. I'm not talking about changing the settled things of our faith. The faith once delivered. Because there are many people doing that. But we can be open where things are not settled. Maybe methods or the kinds of people. And I just, you know, are we going to be open? When God does something, are we going to say, tell him to stop? What was Moses' response to the demand to limit the spread of the Spirit? He said, I wish all the Lord's people were prophets. (laughs) I wish the Lord would put his Spirit on everyone. And you know, that was a prophecy. That was a prophecy. We had a baptism here yesterday. And one of the readings really reached out to me about this is from Ezekiel. It says, I will put my Spirit in you. You will be my people. I will be your God. I want to point out one other marker of healthy community. And it's related to this, and it sounds pretty similar, but it has a little different focus. The disciples of Jesus notice that there's someone they don't know. And he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And John says, We told him to stop because he's not one of us. (laughs) Jesus says, guys, don't stop him. Whoever is not against us is for us. Communities can become tight and rigid and exclusive. A healthy church has a supportive posture toward others that are also seeking to do God's work. There should never be an us versus them mentality but a generosity, a graciousness, an openness to bless, a desire to see others be fruitful for the kingdom. You know, churches can be really competitive. I don't know if you know this or not. It's true. And I admit my own struggles with this sometimes. I have a pastor friend in another town, another state, who told me just the other day that the spirit of competition is so strong in his area that they've not been able to find a place to rent for their new church plant. Established churches just won't open their doors to them. In fact, it's basically said, we have enough churches already. What they're saying is, Jesus, I told them to stop. A.W. Tozer uh, said this. He said, it's too bad that anything so obvious would need to be said. But from all appearances, we Christians have about forgotten the lesson so carefully taught by Paul that God's servants are not to be competitors, but co-workers. Do we always agree with the approach and teaching of other churches? No. But if we, want to, if we want the Lord to bless us, if we want our life together to be fruitful, then how we make room for others doing God's work is key. Now, we've experienced the reality of competition and exclusion at the hand of other churches. We have. 
some things have been said, and I'm just really aware of that. But I also have to stop and say, have we done that to others in word or deed? Have we said things about other ministries? I'm sad to say probably we have along the way somewhere. But what has helped me most with this, and I'm, I'm growing in this, to embrace this, is the truth that this is the Lord's church in the Lord's building with the Lord's people in a community that the Lord has placed us in, and he can do what he wants with it. If we'll just take our hands off the wheel a little bit and follow where the Spirit is leading us together, it will continue to be an amazing journey that others will be drawn to. So, leadership is shared. Be open to how the Spirit is leading. And three, have gracious hearts toward those out there who are also doing God's work. And bless them. I want to finish with, um, it's not a story. Well, it is. It's a true story about Charles Simeon. And I've, I've told this before about his life. I just think I, I always enjoy saying it or hearing it again because it's, it's, um, it's an example of kind of long obedience in the same direction. It's an example of good godly leadership and what fruit it can bring. He was a, he was a student in England, Cambridge. And even before finishing his degree and still lacking pastoral experience, he put his name forward to be the pastor of Holy Trinity Church. Now, this is a church right in the middle of the center of town. And we're talking about the years in you know, late 1700s, early 1800s. Now, this was unheard of. And amazingly, he was given the parish. He would labor there the rest of his life. Now, the church was less than pleased to receive him because he was a blustering minister who insisted that those who call themselves Christian be truly saved by grace and live lives that look like Jesus. <laughs> that was news to them. They sort of distrusted his ivory tower background. They were largely artisans' families. More bluntly, in Simeon's words, they were very poor church folks. He didn't mean monetarily. He just meant they weren't very good church people. They were very wary of his fervor. So opponents harassed him by locking the family-owned pews, forcing those who wished to hear the new minister to find standing room. And then Simeon brought in benches, and when he brought in benches, the church council threw them out into the street. But he was undeterred. He was also determined to provide the Cambridge undergraduates with decent training in theology and pastoral ministry. So he began holding these uh, meetings in his rooms on Sunday night. First it was a few, over the years it was 40, then it grew to 60. Of the undergraduates that he trained, over a thousand became effective, many distinguished. They were parish ministers, chaplains, missionaries. His, his leadership changed the whole church of England at that time during his 54 years at that church. Lord, help us to lead well. Help us to follow well, follow you well. Lord, thank you for the gifts that you've poured out on this community, and I pray that we would know what those gifts are if we're missing it. Lord, bless others who are doing your work in this place, in this town, in this region. And wherever we have an opportunity to bless them, Lord, let us do that. Let's just open our hands and do that. 
Lord, if you want to do something new among us now in this season, we just say, come and do it. Whatever that is. Lord, we thank you that you're with us. You are sovereign over us. In Jesus' name, amen.